From WNET in New York, welcome to this special author series edition of WNET Up Next. Hi, I'm Tom Stewart. We know that a lot of you like to catch up on your reading this time of the year, so we've got some terrific new books for you to think about. First up, author David Reed joins Metro Focus anchor Raphael P. Roman to talk about his new book, The Brazen Age, New York City and the American Empire, Politics, Art, and Bohemia. It's all about the city during the post-World War II era. And joining me now to talk about The Brazen Age is David Reed. David, welcome. Glad to be here. Now, David, how did you come to write this book? Well, there is the long answer and the short answer. Give me the one you, <laughs> give me the long answer. Why not? The, the longer answer is that I realized at a certain point that this was the obvious place where uh, most of my interests intellectually converged, but urban history, the history of the left, uh, history of avant-garde. Uh, this was clearly the capital of modernity, or if you were uh, strictly speaking, post-modernity. Uh, <laughs> and the short answer is that my agent asked me if I had a book to write. She said, write me a letter, no longer the two pages long meant to be read by other eyes. <laughs> so I did, and in that letter I quoted Gore Vidal right. as saying roughly, between, night, between December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor Day, and the outbreak of the Korean War in the summer of 1950. The United, the United States, in that long span, had been more or less continuously at war from Pearl Harbor Day to the day he was writing, which was 1974, with the exception of what he called a brief, too little celebrated interregnum. And that was the period between the end of World War II and the beginning of the Korean War. And then he said, the United States, the empire, I must correct myself, the empire gorged with victory, turned his attention to peaceful pursuits, and we enjoyed, if not a golden, at least not too brazen an age. <laughs> and later that night, my agent phoned me and said, you realize he's handed you your title. And with that, I was launched, and for many years, I spent my time circumnavigating those five years. But you do believe it was a brazen age, I'm, and a golden age. And a golden age. I mean, I, it's, I've been queried on that several times, and I would, I would begin by saying it was a golden age culturally and a brazen age politically. I've been reminded that brazen also implies audacity, daring, boldness, excess, and that's certainly true in the arts. You suddenly see a, you know, a, a American painters who had hitherto been a rather sedate mm -hmm. group by comparison. Suddenly you had the hulking figure of Jackson Pollock, mm -hmm. you know, whom his friend William, friend and rival William de Kooning said, look at that guy in Life magazine, he looks just like a service station attendant. <laughs> you know, so you had, you had audacity, you had boldness, you had innovation. But also, uh, I have realized that, and perhaps this was implicit in Gore's phrase, uh, in the poet Hesiod, in classical mythology, the Brazen Age, the Bronze Age, succeeds the Golden Age because mm -hmm of the interruption of violence. Mm -hmm. so, so talk a little bit more, if you would. Give us the context before we dive into the book. Mm -hmm. Give us the context of what the world was like at the end of World War II, where, you know, the last half of the 1940s. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, one, of course, it was the end of the war, and one thing which is very difficult to get in focus because we know how things worked out to date. But at the end of the Second World War, the United States had achieved the summit of the world. It was, it was, it possessed, you know, a third of the world's treasures, literally in the case of gold, about a quarter of the manufacturing, one could go on and on and on. Uh, the great cities of Europe were in ruins, or if they were not in ruins, they were dispirited and disillusioned yeah. after the, what really was the conclusion of a 30 years European right. war. 
Uh, and so, and at that point, much of the genius of Europe had transported itself to America and was living mostly in New York, but there was a good colony in West LA. One thing which, I, which is easy to forget is that people thought that this condition might go on for a very long mm. time. So you start the book with the famous 50 mile a drive right. that FDR took around the five boroughs as he was, you know, trying to get elected to a fourth term. Why? Why did you start with that? And and what was the inspiration of FDR to the book? Well, I was raised in a Democratic Union household in which FDR was revered, uh, and uh, I have some of the first books my father ever bought me were books about the, about the New Deal. In fact, after after the Second World Second World War, there was this big publishing phenomenon of memoirs about Roosevelt. Also, that was a key moment. It seems like that was a very odd election. Obviously, no one had run for, well, you know, had run for a third term before FDR successfully, right. and certainly no one had ever thought it was conceivable there would be a fourth. But I thought it was, it, what was astonishing was here we had this figure who never identified himself as a New York City politician. He was an upstate squire. Right. Theodore Roosevelt was a, was a son of Manhattan. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, New York was his citadel. And intellectually and politically and even financially, FDR got support from Wall Street, although certainly not from all of it. Mm. Uh, and so I thought it was appropriate to do that. There was a kind of there was a kind of quality of a medieval progress to it. Mm. You had this president who was dying, whether he admitted it to himself or not, but who wanted to show the public otherwise. He wanted to show he was alive and laughing. And the strange thing is that that very odd election, only the second wartime election since 1864 set the pattern for about the next 50 years. Mm -hmm. Roughly, most historians will say the New Deal order lasted until 1980, but actually, whenever the Democratic Party prospers, what it usually does is to reassemble the New Deal coalition. Mm -hmm. Now, William O'Dwyer was uh, the mayor of New York City right. during this period of time that you focus on, and he followed the legendary Fiorello LaGuardia. Uh, his, his, his tenure, how important was his tenure in shaping the city. Now that's an interesting question. LaGuardia, uh, of course, was this titanic force, a, five, a titanic force who was five feet two. Yeah. Uh, he did not think much of his successor. He once compared uh, O'Dwyer to a cabbage. I, I think this was in terms of intellect. Um, but as I say, and as I say in my book, I mean, after that, I think New York and LaGuardia had tired a little of one another. Uh, you can correct me on this, but my impression is that after three terms, this city usually has seen enough of a mayor. That seems to be the case. That seems to be the case, yes. The mayors might not feel the yeah, same yeah. way, but that seems to be right. the rule. Uh, O'Dwyer was, was temperamentally the opposite. I mean, he was the cop on the block. Literally, he had literally been, he had yeah. been. Okay, he was you know he had, he was an immigrant. He'd come, right. He had come over from you know from County Mayo, um, and had risen with the help of his friends at, at Tammany Hall. Uh, of course, he was a New Dealer. There were also suspicions, however, that he had uh, his relationship with organized crime was perhaps socially too intimate. Yeah. Uh, one of his first calls after his election was to Frank Costello, mm -hmm. one of the most eminent gangsters <laughs> of, of the of the era. And what had his you know, his tenure was rocky. Uh, there, you know, it began with the greatest strike wave in American history. Amazing! I didn't know about the things that you write about. Talk about that. Yeah. Well, in 1940, in 1945, I think a lot of people. Uh, are so struck with the, the myth of wartime solidarity yeah. that they don't realize that, that wartime was, was a very, very fraught time for Americans. People, did, people 
might have gotten up in the morning and done what they thought they were supposed to do, contributed to scrap drives and all of that kind of thing, but the mood was strange. The great C. Wright Mills, so the, who was then a young sociologist at, uh, at Columbia, said the war was, there was a strange sense of, of, you know, of, of emptiness about the whole event. There was emotional detachment. Uh, he said people would sit in, in movie theaters watching, watching people being bombed in Europe with apparent indifference. And he said the public mood was cold and blasé. Now that isn't what people remember and who is to say if he got it right. Yeah. What we do know is that, is that there were enormous labor battles. There were race riots in Detroit, in Los Angeles for the, the Pachuco riots and, and in Harlem here. Yeah. So it was a troubled period. And, and you write about the stevedores, how, how they basically locked down the city. Yeah. I, I, I had, I'm a labor historian of sorts, <laughs> and I've never heard of it. Well, what happened was, yeah, uh, after the war, within, within three or four weeks, there was just this gigantic surge of strikes in New York and throughout the country. There wasn't ever a general strike in New York as there was in Oakland, for, right. for instance. But as you say, every niche of, of, of labor, of the laboring life in New York had been organized. Uh, the, the great historian Joshua Freeman says that the roll call was Whitman-esque. Yeah. The elevator operators, the stevedores, the hairdressers, and they were all on <laughs> strike. You could not go through Midtown without yeah. crossing 40 picket lines. Yeah. So the city came very close to being shut down twice in that yeah. period. Right, right. Now, this book, as you said, is a focus, as I said, it's a focus between 45 and 50. But you dedicate a lot of pages <laughs> to years preceding that, all the way back, as I think as far back as 1830, where <laughs> you talk about Edgar Allan Poe, the right. first Bohemian in Greenwich <laughs> yes. Village. Why did you think it was necessary to put it in such a large historic context to focus on this period? In that case in particular, what I, what, what I found was that the history of Bohemia is very, very central to New York. Mm -hmm. New York really became a cultural, a culture city after it became a world city. You know, the great German historian, the very gloomy German historian Oswald Spengler said that history might show that the most important event of the 19th century was the rise of New York, and by New York he meant Manhattan, mm -hmm. uh, to the status of a world city during the Civil War era. But it wasn't really a culture city until just after the, the turn of the 20th century. And then you get the proto-Bohemians arriving in Greenwich Village. You get Max and Crystal Eastman, an extraordinary brother and sister yeah. team. You get Floyd Dell. You get Edna St. Vincent Millay. You get the Masses, which was edited by, mm -hmm. by, by, by Max Eastman. It was said of Max Eastman that he was so red at that time that he set the bushes on Union yeah. Square on fire. Uh, and, at, and at that time, New York really became part of this international network of Bohemias, going from St. Petersburg uh, to Barcelona, the, the young Picasso, to Paris, to the London of the Vorticists, and there's this kind of, and then of course to San Francisco. Uh, and you have some of the same figures in both places, like, the, like the, the novelist Frank Norris, who wrote Bohemian novels set in both San Francisco and New York. So in that way, it, Bohemia kind of internationalized New York culturally the same way its financiers had, you know, had organized you know, the circuits of money. So you say the Spangler, when he was talking about New York, he meant Manhattan. He meant Manhattan. What about you? No, I, mainly I mean Manhattan. Um, but, but at that time, uh, when, when, when Europe spoke of New York, they meant Manhattan. Mm -hmm. uh, and to them, it seemed a kind, you know, a kind of world, a rather frightening one, when, when mm -hmm. many of them fled to it in the 30s and right. 40s. And, and those Europeans that that came to New York, uh, escaping Hitler, right. you write about them yeah. extensively in the book. To what degree did they um, affect, influence the culture of the city and beyond the city? 
You know, it had a kind of immeasurable effect, which I think is actually still sort of being reticulated, because you really had the greatest flight of intellect, uh, it's been said, since the, the scholars of Byzantium mm. fled the Turks in 1453. But what you had was, you had poets who had been sort of distant legends. One thing that struck me writing this was uh, how, how, how few of the eminent writers, even people like Thomas Mann, had ever been to America before. Yeah, I didn't know that until I read it in a year. Yeah, I mean, uh, and that came as an astonishment to me. But I think you, you saw this intellectual emigration changing American life, uh, you know, in, in a manifold of ways. You had physics. Then you had, you know, Einstein was no longer a distant rumor. Einstein was living in Princeton, New Jersey. Yeah. Niels Bohr, all this one, you know, you know, one could go on. You had directors, of course, coming. You had, you know, film you had film, film directors, but also, but also film, you know, but also theater directors like Piscator. Right. Uh, Europeans taught Americans how to decorate their houses, how to analyze their motives, how to write their advertisements. Yeah. Now, I don't say, I, I do not say. We did not have any, have any departures of our own in this field, but it's still it's astonishing the effect of the Europeanization of America, which really began in the New Deal era, I would say. Now you write, quote, there was no definitive success in American life, material or intellectual, unless it was ratified by New York opinion. Why did New York City have such a strong hold on the I, cultural zeitgeist? I, I would say it's, I, you know, that the John Gunther's line, which I, which which you allude to, uh, was confirmed just by that supremacy in the media, which in those days meant the print media. New York had 16, 17 daily newspapers in various languages. Uh, it it controlled the apparatus of opinion. Uh, there's a photo in the book of of Henry Luce looking very lordly, the master of time, life, and yeah. fortune. And in this case, well, Irv, it was fascinating. Uh, he, he, cause he was sort of perceived as the great enemy of talent. Uh, he was always conscripting the brightest guys. He uh, for right. example, he hired the young Irving Howe to write book reviews. Irving Howe thought that he was, that, you know, that he should, he should be belonged on the streets mm -hmm. writing pamphlets. He went to his to the commissar of partisans, as he was known, Philip Robb, <laughs> saying, "Shouldn't I stay a freelance?" And Philip Robb said, "Better one bad boss than a dozen." <laughs> 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 Good lesson for him. But a, ma but a magazine like, you know, a, a review in Time magazine could make a career. Right. Uh, a devastating remark by Walter Winchell in his column could destroy a career. Yeah. A lead by Walter Littman in the Herald Tribune could set the tone for a debate on foreign policy. Uh, for better or worse, this was the places where opinion was made. And the only real rival, which was, strictly speaking, an opinion-making capital, was Hollywood. Yeah. But of course, the money power in Hollywood was right here. Was right here. Right here. It, never, it never left. Right. It right. never has. Now, you, you, the part three of your book is called Words, Words, Words. Yeah. So the connection between words and New York City is what led to this uh, uh, cultural imperialism by the city, even though the city's so different than the rest <laughs> of the country. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think it was the 20s that people began saying New York is not America. But the rest of the country listened to New York. I mean, I think that this junction was actually most vivid during the early days of television. Because the early in, in its early days, television was, as Walter Winchell would say, a very New Yorky medium. <laughs> I think left to its devices, middle America would never have embraced Milton Berle uh, you know, as its first big superstar. <laughs> but in fact, uh, television came out of New York, uh, live drama came out of New York, because there, here were all these actors. Uh, and I think one, one, of the, one of the unknown historical turning points in the history of the media 
was when largely because of, of, of superstars like Bing Crosby, videotape was developed. It was, it's, it's developed, was really hastened because these people were tired of doing two shows. Television was live, but if you were doing a variety show in LA, you had to do it twice, once early for New York and then once later on for the rest of the country. So I think it was the, but I think the, the real power though resided in the printed word and the printed image. We don't live in that imperium anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, we live in, we live in, a, in, you know, in an empire of signs and images, mm -hmm. quite different from, from that. It was a print city. So talk about some of the city's most important cultural figures of this period that you write about. And if you want to go outside of this period, because you write about a lot of very interesting <laughs> people that made their name before 1945 to 1950. Well, I think one curious thing is that a lot of people who uh, were sort of the looming demigods of New York intellectual life chose not to live in New York. I think it was a very calculated move. There's something, something of an irony of this that sort of rhymes with the fact that FDR never identified as a New Yorker, though in fact he had a house thoughtfully built for him by his mother on 57th <laughs> yeah. Street. Uh, but he always listed his, you know, he was always a man of Hyde Park, and in those days you were asked your profession, and he always gave his as tree grower. Well, similarly, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and Anne Douglas writes, about, writes about, about this pair in her wonderful book, Terrible Honesty. Um, Ernest Hemingway, as the world knows, lived in Paris and went hunting in Africa mm -hmm. and lived in Cuba, and lived and drank in Cuba. Right. Uh, Gertrude Stein stayed, stayed, in, stayed in Paris, and she had a great fascination for the avant-garde, for people like Virgil Thompson. Uh, and T.S. Eliot, uh, of course, you know, lived, you, know, you know, lived in London, though I, I think in his career nothing gave him more professional satisfaction than finally seeing his name in lights That's right. <laughs> on, on Broadway. Right. So you did have people who, so you had culture gods who, who did not find it necessary to spend much time here. But on the other hand, in the 30s, uh, when it seemed like there was a proletarian cultural turn, we're talking about Union Square, which was really kind of the, the, the real hub of the city at that time. Uh, when you're talking about post-war dissident culture, you have the Beats, who were a very New York phenomenon. Um, and then there are the great writers who do identify with New York. There's, there's you know, the New Yorker writers, uh, many of whom had difficult relations with the New York, with the New Yorker, <laughs> my favorite being John O'Hara, mm -hmm. who wrote some of the great New York short stories. Yeah. Uh, on the cover of a biography of Harold Ross, there is a... He was the famous editor. The famous the founding editor of the New Yorker. Uh, there is a letter f reproduced uh, from the typescript <laughs> by O'Hara, who writes simply, you know, Dear Harold, I want more money. I want more money. I want more money. And it fills up to the bottom of the, bottom of the page. And then you get, like, the quintessential New York writer, or New Yorker writer of, of his half century, John Updike. And here you have someone who decided it was, you know, who spent one season in New York. He did a lovely essay, and he said, only an out-of-towner could write the talk of the town. <laughs> you know, which I thought was quite wonderful. Yeah. Now, you talked earlier about uh, the uh, immigrants, uh, yeah. European immigrants that came to New York to, and lived here and moved, and moved to other parts of the country later. What about the so-called foreigners who visited New York? You have a whole chapter okay. called uh, New York Observed right. about the foreigners who come and write about New York. What were they saying? Who were some of these people and what were they saying about New York? Well, I, I was, the most famous today would probably be the existentialists. I hope and trust the existentialists still have some currency, at least <laughs> on college campus. We were talking about John Paul. I, I think they're back in style. They, I noticed, I noticed there's that new book, The Existentialist Cafe. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so you have, you have Jean Paul Sartre and, and, and Albert Camus. Um, they, both, both he and Sartre wrote wonderful essays on New York. Sartre's, called, Sartre's is called New York the Colonial City. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, and Camus is uh, I think it's called the Reign of Im the Reign the Reigns of New York. Wonderful, wonderful essays. Mm -hmm. Then Simone de Beauvoir uh, came, the all, and she got she, she had a more difficult relationship because Sartre never pretended to know how to speak English. He, he said that if you were in America, fine would do. You just, mm -hmm. would, no matter what anybody s said, you'd just say fine. Camus mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> could read English, but he didn't pretend to speak it. She pretended to understand what, she, oh. what people were saying. That, yeah. that led to misunderstanding. <laughs> and then there were the English observers. Uh, going back to Aldous Huxley, who, whom I omit, but going back to Huxley in the 20s, of course there's a whole tradition of English observers going back to Charles Dickens, Dickens right? um, going back to the 1830s and 1840s and, and Mrs. Trollope. Uh, but in, but in, my, in, in, in the period I write about, it was mainly the English, there was Cyril Connolly, oh. who was a famous literary critic of the time, and, and then Cecil Beaton, who was a, a fashionable photographer, mm -hmm. a great memoirist. And what fascinated me was these people could never agree. That's right. That's, that was great. <laughs> they saw completely different cities. It was cities. an utterly different city. They couldn't agree whether it was clean. One was dirty, one was clean. Yeah, right? One was dirty. <laughs> one said it was dirty, one said it was clean. Uh, Sartre thought it was, Sartre thought it was, it was, it was filthy. He, you know, his kitchen <laughs> was a mess. And, it was, uh, and then there was static electricity. I don't know whatever happened to static <laughs> electricity. People were always getting shot. Uh, so if the... End of the 40s was the brazen age and a kind of a golden age. Let me put you on the spot. What kind of age is New York living through now? <laughs> when, I be, when, I, when I began writing about New York, people had a very different view of New York and the city uh -huh. than they do now. Uh, there was a time, I didn't begin writing the book in the 70s, but there was a time in the 70s uh, when writers like John Lukacs, who was a brilliant Hungarian yeah. historian, who came over in 1946, I think, as a displaced person, mm -hmm. writes wonderfully about the city. Uh, in Confessions of an Original Sinner, just great, sometimes ungallant observations, <laughs> I've got to say. But he wrote a book called The Passing of the Modern Age uh, in the 1970s. He said, in Europe, the city, in 1945, the cities of Europe were on fire. It took 30 years for America's cities to be on fire. Mm. You know, this was the era of, you know, Fort Apache, the Bronx, yeah. uh, buildings being burnt by their owners, desperate to escape yeah, the responsibility sure. of owning them. A lot of people in the you know in the 50s and 60s, including Hannah Arendt, you know one of the most brilliant of the intellectual emigres, had said that the city as an entity would just blur into the countryside. It was sort of essentially be bled out by suburbia. None of these things happened. Mm -hmm. There was, in fact, this urban renaissance. Mm -hmm. We can argue about who was responsible. We can argue about how you know how how, how many people benefited from this. Whether whether mm -hmm. we're living in a gilded age, which would be followed by a dark. But I think we we are we are living through a period of a renaissance of the city and the idea of the city. All right. Well, that's a good it's a good place to end, David. The book is uh, the Brazen Age: New York City and the American Empire, Politics, Arts, and Bohemia. And for a California fellow, you sure know a lot about New York, David. That's a wonderful <laughs> Thanks book. So much, Thank you so much for Thank coming you. here today. You've been listening to a special author series edition of WNET Up Next, featuring Metro Focus anchor Raphael P. Roman and author David Reed, discussing his new book, The Brazen Age. Join us again soon for another edition of WNET Up Next. And please share your thoughts with us at upnext at WNET.org. WNET Up Next is brought to you by the Design and On-Air Promotion Department of WNET New York. Special support for this episode from Metro Focus. I'm Tom Stewart.